Oh, hello. Thanks for joining us. Uh, my name is Barry Cooper, and I'm one half of Cooper and Carey Have Words. The other one is James Carey. I'm in Florida, and James is over there in Somerset, England. James, I understand you're in a cold working environment, but you've taken steps to deal with it. How's it looking over there? It's certainly warmer. My office is now 15 degrees. It was 9 degrees on Monday, and I was so cold, I thought, I can't actually work, so I should probably buy a fan heater. So <laughs> popped down to Argos, bought a fan heater... Uh, this is not a this is not a sponsored podcast, but it could be right. Argos. You could yeah. make this happen. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to be associated with the views of two reformed men uh, in middle mm-hmm. age? That's the question that's been asked by by many people. We're still here, a hundred, nearly one hundred and fifty episodes on. It's mm. Remarkable. But this, what we're going to talk about is the whole issue of winsomeness and i've got to be honest at first i wasn't sure about this but then james came up with the title you win some you lose some and at that point i was in the pun I carries was in 110 percent. <laughs> yeah it does i just thought even if we say nothing let's yeah. just put something out with that title on it yeah what's the aim of wins wins winsomeness where it comes to christians being christian is, is it a biblical thing first of all i guess it must be and right. 1 Corinthians 9 is one place to start. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might win some. Win some. Mm. That's good. That's good. I think that is very true. Sometimes translated save some, but I'm sure it comes to the same thing. Yeah. Um, so in other words, it's an approach that seeks to minimize offense so as to maximize openness to the gospel and it seems like when stated in that way the idea of not becoming a stumbling block to people when you've already got the stumbling block of the cross the stumbling block of christ you don't also want to introduce into that the other stumbling block of just being a bit of a git yeah oh just saying things it's just not helpful yeah Yeah. and it's probably worth saying because we're both uh in our late 40s i wouldn't say that some later than others i'd say early 50s yeah but it's worth saying that if you if you came of age as it were in the 90s and as a christian were involved in especially university christian scene uccf all those kinds of things mission evangelism it was all about winsomeness. It was all about joining in, being being a nice guy, being the good person, uh, being somebody who is ask, you know, living such good lives among the pagans. So this was a bit of a no-brainer, really, wasn't it? Um, and I'm sure you experienced that. I mean, you became a Christian at uni, whereas I was a Christian all the way through. And I was aware mm. of how missions worked and what we were trying to do and what you were doing by living out your life and, and what you said was part of it as well. So yeah. you were trying to make Christianity look not weird. There was a bit of a pressure yes. to say that, look, I'm just normal like you, but you could have what I have, which I guess now sounds like it's pretty naive or thin, but that's that was the culture at the time, both you know university days and then you know for the next 10, 15 years afterwards. Yes, I guess it was, although this was pre-Tim Keller for me. I'd not come across Tim Keller, and he'd not really hit his apogee, I guess, until the end of the 90s. Mm. And my memory of it, 
of conservative evangelical circles anyway was that actually it was fairly forthright and the gospel was typically advanced as you know this is jesus paying the price for your sin and if and there is hell and judgment it was very straightforward i had certainly not come across what we might think of as presuppositional apologetics right it was all very evidentialist and i tend to think of evidentialists as slightly more confrontational in some ways than presuppositional, although I guess it can go either way. Well, I'm not sure whether that's true, because in a way, and I, you know, I'm a fan of presuppositional, presuppositional, yeah. poly, uh, presuppositional <laughs> apologetics, which is essentially to say there is no middle ground and yeah. we're not applying to some, appealing to some outside standard. So that was more in vogue in the 90s, which is let us reason together and between yes. and and so therefore you will end up using your reason to conclude the christian view on this yes i i think what i'm getting at is that i think evidentialism is a, is typically associated with fundamentalism okay and fundamentalism obviously as a as a movement did adopt a much more um adversarial posture mm. and evangelicalism developed and this is you know we'll put some links in here in the in the show notes that's brave that's fighting talk (laughs) (laughs) um but beginning beginning around about the 1940s evangelicalism developed as an attempt to kind of mitigate against the the, what was perceived as as the harshness of fundamentalism Mm -hmm. it was an attempt to be more more kind and more gentle in such a way as to to reach uh reach more people reach the mainstream can we just rewind slightly so when people hear the word yeah. fundamentalist i guess many people don't know that that word has a specific original meaning because now we think yeah. of if you're our age and can remember the news back 20 years you're talking about islamic fundamentalists who are actually yes. islamists uh, it would be a better term for them so a fundamentalist yeah. we now think is somebody who's a swivel-eyed lunatic who's all in on something so yes and and actually quite anti-intellectual yeah whereas of course when it started it grew out of uh, it was presbyterian theologians at princeton theological seminary this is the, the late 19th century um and it was very much an intellectual and academic uh, movement and about the yeah. fundaments of the faith wasn't yeah. it that's the way that's where fundamentalism comes from it's about right the fundamentals yeah, yeah. so but now it has such a loaded meaning of fanaticism a fundamentalist yes, is does. a fanatic which yeah. and and it's not that it, it has those connotations as well, but it it was a bit of a retreat from the world. It was happy to be have a stance against it, and I guess we're all into the Christ against culture, within culture, through culture, upside down. I do is, is that what? Ne- ne- Niebuhr, the Christ and culture stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. we 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 don't need to get into all that. Uh, which is great because we don't have any notes on it. So that's that's not <laughs> happening. That's <laughs> ideal. But to say on the fundamentalism stuff, what I think one of the reasons why, another reason why the whole Winsome project became more pressing, I think, was when in 2001, some planes were flown into some skyscrapers in New York. And who was responsible for that? Mm. Well, they were were Muslim fundamentalists. Mm. And so fundamentalism, again... It, the the view was, and this was very much um, the view articulated by the new atheists, which was sort of big at that time, um, the new atheism, was the idea that basically all religious fundamentalism is 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 dangerous mm. and and kind of non anti intellectual 
and and just poisonous to society and so again christians who might previously have thought well i kind of am from a fundamentalist background but i certainly don't associate with that kind of thing suddenly there was the sense of well we need we we need a new approach here we need sort of new and we need new labels that was quite a key moment Mm. and then you get two things one is tim keller planting successfully a church in an extremely unchurched capital city more not capital city but global city in new york yes and i think that started he was already there wasn't he sort of in the early 90s i think i'm right in saying that is true but we but there's that plus the world wide web and so suddenly what was happening in america was of interest to people in the uk and to some extent australia and uh, various other places like that but also you know the far east or, or or wherever you like but suddenly we Keller became a bit of a Christian celebrity within our tribe, and it yes. was like, "This is how you do it." So, if you're living in, this is how you do it. If you're living mm. in London, a multicultural city, which is one of the great capitalist capitals, where people come from all over the world, and the gospel seems just too hard to to express in ways that aren't going to enrage people. Well, look, it's possible if you do it winsomely, like Tim Keller. Yes. And nobody nobody does it better. I feel like breaking into some Carly Simon here, yeah. but nobody does it better than than Tim Keller as far as the winsome approach. You know, urbane, incredibly well read, yeah. able to um, articulate his opponent's arguments even more strongly than his opponents would, yeah. and so on and so forth. And I think there is so so much to commend to that. I like I. I know there is a lot of knocking Keller that goes on at present, and we're going to talk about that, but I've benefited enormously from him and his books, and I still think there is much in his approach which is perfectly biblical and ought ought to therefore be something that we we think seriously about. Yeah, and I think there are two things that particularly, just thinking back to that time when I I first fell in love with the ministry of Tim Keller, because although you had to pay for some of the content, which is a bit annoying, uh, there was quite a lot of free stuff. And then he then informed an awful lot of other preaching. His effect on other preachers was, was, is vast. I mean, truly, truly vast. But the two things in particular that I liked was he often quoted secular literature and also gave the impression that he had actually read it. And that he actually read The Atlantic, which is probably not as leftist as it is now, but he would quote stuff that the New Yorkers were reading. And, you know, that the internationalists and the citizens of nowhere or whoever, however pejorative you want to be about it. But so it just felt like he'd read the classics and he understood them. He'd read, you know, and he read recent publications and he was on top of stuff. And not only that he was reading it in order to shred it and and destroy it but he was reading it in order to understand it because actually it might have some value it might have some wisdom but it's just going to fall short in a particular way and that brings me on to the second thing that I remember just being enthralled by in his preaching was how he would give you a longing for something and then show you how Christ meets that longing and it's either a longing for family, it's either a longing for purpose, it's a longing for eternity, it's a longing for uh, redemption or forgiveness or whatever it was. Particularly in the Old Testament, he would then show how this Old Testament story figure character, we then go to Christ and we see how Christ is uh, another Adam. He's the new Adam, how he is another Moses, how he is. And that's, you know, that's at the heart of my 
Water into Wine show. I listened to a lot of Theopolis stuff as well and the typology and stuff. So in a way, he was doing typology really before it was it was cool. Mm. Uh, I don't know if he if he knew he was doing that or would have called it that. He's not stupid, so he probably did. So those were things that I thought were really enthralling, and I don't think anything should be taken away from that. I just think he really had a very very positive effect on yeah. some pretty turgid. Uh, head-bangingly illiterate preaching and I think people thought yeah. oh you could do that oh okay right yeah let's let's try more that yes having said that one last caveat don't try preaching like Tim Keller in a small country village in a rural setting to people you know don't you're not preaching to the to city slickers and New Yorkers you're preaching to the congregation that you're preaching to. So I guess there was an element of, I want to preach to, like Tim Keller. And if the people in my congregation can't keep up with it, well, that's just too bad. I, I can't think of specific examples where people have done that. But I would imagine it must have been hard to not do that. If you were hearing Keller and then preaching in a completely different cultural situation mm. to, to sort of try to do a, a, a sermon that Tim Keller would have been proud of or would have given you positive words for, but he probably wouldn't have done because it would have been not appropriate to the situation and the congregation, the context. Yeah, yeah. it wouldn't have been contextualised yeah. quite. One of the main benefits of his approach uh, seems, to, seems to have been, uh, and, and again, this goes back to our definition at the top of the show, you know, that by all means I might win some, he was able to very much get himself a, a seat at the top table in terms of he was writing in the New Yorker, he was writing in the New York Times. And there seemed to it seemed that he was being accepted at the highest levels mm. of secular society. They're actually listening to what he had to say. Yeah. And I guess this is where um this is where Aaron Wren's um stuff and Aaron Wren of course was sitting under uh, Keller's teaching in Manhattan himself yeah. for, for several years. But he's he's his his idea that we've moved from a positive world through a neutral world to a negative world, meaning that society culture used to be very much in favour of Christianity. If you identified yourself as a Christian, there was a good chance that would help you to get ahead as a politician and or whatever else you happen to be doing. A neutral world where, you know, it was, it was, st- it was still okay. You weren't going to be cancelled for being a Christian. But a negative world where you very much would be, where c- Christianity becomes abhorrent. And this is something Ren argues has basically happened since 2014. That's the, the rough date that he puts on it. And he says that because of that, you've you've seen some really interesting things happen. So, for example, with Tim Keller in mind, he was invited to collect the seminary's Abraham Kuyper Award at Princeton Seminary in 2017 um, and then give a lecture. And that was rescinded. The invitation was rescinded. The award was rescinded. He was allowed to give a talk, but the award was rescinded. And so... Again, it's hard to imagine that that is something that would have happened 10 years ago, but it is the sort of thing that's routinely yeah. happening now. I was amazed to read that story. I, I, I didn't know that. And this, this is a guy who, again, it was exhilarating to see Tim Keller, our guy, at Google doing yeah, a lecture. Google, yeah, I remember right. seeing there's an hour-long yeah. lecture of him doing basically the reason for God shtick at Google, you know, and it's like brilliant. Yeah. But now here he is being cancelled by a seminary for essentially his complementarianism. Princeton let the ironist note the ones where fundamentalism originated. Yeah. Wow. It's extraordinary. And so the question then comes up, well, 
that's interesting so are we saying then that that tim keller's approach no longer works mm. and if so do we need to change that approach or do we say well actually keller's just been doing things biblically the whole time we should keep doing it but just not necessarily expect that people are going to like it yeah um it's become it's becoming harder and harder to be winsome it seems to me there are just certain things which you have to say i mean for example if you you ask somebody like keller to talk about a, a abortion or talk about uh, gender issues or sexuality issues you can't i think in some ways since he's retired from pastoring he's actually been a lot clearer about those things but it's hard to imagine him being at the top table anymore as a result of those things because of this negative world that we now live in so what do you think james do you think that that's that's a sort of a a damning indictment on his approach or is it more that okay um this is the way culture historically usually has been it hates christians mm. and we just have to suck it up we ought to it's not an excuse to stop being gentle in the right situations and to have the same approach of trying to win as many as we can by by adapting ourselves accordingly mm. or do we need to adapt a, a new approach a more combative approach More words in a moment. Do you want to dig deeper in your study of Reformed theology? The All of Life for God podcast, presented by Reformation Heritage Books, offers you weekly sermons, audiobook chapters, and interviews that will help strengthen your relationship with Jesus Christ. So what are you waiting for? Just search All of Life for God wherever you get your podcast and start listening today. Presented by Reformation Heritage Books. Yeah, I mean that is that is what this podcast is about. He says, not answering it. Just words, but good words. That's where ideas begin. Maybe you should listen to them. My gut reaction on on that Keller thing is, in a way, bless the guy for making hay while the sun shines. He had a twenty thirty year opportunity or window in New York to build a church, which has blessed tens of thousands of people and had、mm. an effect on probably. Millions, if not tens of millions, of people in how how he has you know set set stuff up and organisations as well, and just been a really gracious, interesting, smart guy who's been really inspiring to lots of people. So I don't think we need to say that he was never the bad guy, and that's a problem. He didn't ever need、hmm. to be the bad guy. Yeah, I think a lot of it is people on Twitter basically presuming to read somebody's motives from afar.、Mm. And this, this idea that he was deliberately dumbing down the message so that he would be able to go and speak at places like Google, I think is a is a really uncharitable reading. And I, I do think that you can see some of those earlier talks where he's asked directly about abortion, for example, and and he is a little mealy mouthed, if I'm honest.、Mm. But I think if on if anything, as I said, as he's got older, he's become even more direct about these things. So I don't think it's. There's also a really interesting article where somebody's gone back and just somebody said, "Oh, he's gone really soft on hell and God's wrath," and somebody went back through his entire back catalogue and looked at all the references to to God's wrath. And you know, fair's fair, fair juice to the guy.、Mm. He's he's not trying to airbrush it out. Yeah. So yes, there's all of that. I mean, part of the difficulty is, I suppose, is that winsome is one of these wonderful words that into which so many different definitions have crammed because it's not in the Bible,、mm. um, isn't it? 
<laughs> it's that's amazingly amazing amazing but true yeah. but there are obviously lots of uh, references to, to to gentleness and so on so for example i think one of the chief biblical proof texts is probably colossians chapter three paul says put on then as god's chosen ones holy and beloved compassionate hearts kindness humility meekness and patience bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive and above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony you've got jesus himself of course describing himself as gentle and lowly in heart you've got the apostles um, be kind to one another tender-hearted forgiving one another as god in christ forgave you we're encouraged to avoid quarreling to be gentle to show perfect courtesy toward all people and and that by the way all of those texts are to do with how believers are supposed to treat believers that's mm. believers treating believers but the texts about how we relate to outsiders are uh, mostly similar as well gentleness being the the, the key word mm. but then you've got a big problem haven't you james and that problem is jesus oh because he what's he done now well let me tell you i've read this bible of yours right and <laughs> your so-called bible he's... if that is your real name <laughs> yes where is your god now uh, and it says he says some mean things james carey yeah. and i want to know what you've got to say about it he says you're an evil and adulterous generation you brood of vipers you whitewashed tombs and then to one of his closest friends and disciples he says get away from me satan i mean we've had some heated conversations james but i've never referred to you in that way i'm pleased to say and yet your jesus has got some seems you know speaks in this mean way yeah. at times what how does that fit into the whole winsomeness debate what are you supposed to do with that there's a chapter in my book called the sacred art of joking which is about how jesus really uses mean words and flat out insults and he's not lying they are a brood of vipers and vipers would have had all the connotations of satanic snakes from eden mm. jesus makes people uncomfortable so mm. often so often and i think sometimes yeah. even we just think that he's like this with self-righteous people and with pharisees and with sadducees and he is although interesting yeah. isn't it when he says to simon the pharisee a lovely verse when simon says i can't believe you let that that woman wash your feet with perfume whatever jesus says simon i have something to tell you and it's such a gentle way of saying mm. simon um you've got this completely wrong completely wrong this whole god religion <laughs> temple law mm. business so he was gentle with mm. people who should know better and equally i'm mm. always struck by jesus and the samaritan woman when he has a lovely conversation about living water sir let me have some of that water and jesus says mm. oh go and get your husband so I, I i don't have a husband yeah that's right isn't it and the man that you're living with isn't your husband huh you know record scratch awkward mm. why did you do that and Jesus, but there's a gentleness to it, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, there is, there is a gentleness to it, but it is yeah. really awkward. It's confrontational, confrontational, yeah. and also some yeah. would argue, and we 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 don't know, and currently have no way of knowing. Some would say, well, the fact that she's been married so many times probably isn't her fault. She may have been divorced many times, mm -hmm. you know, victim of of, of male uh, domination, all that kind of stuff. We do not know the answer to that, in my opinion. 
But equally, it is a challenging conversation, and especially in John's Gospel, Jesus, as I'm really going through it, Jesus is really troubling. And, you know, John 6, I've, I just did a substack about this fairly recently, about our episode on hell, where he's talking about drinking his blood and eating his flesh. Yeah. And some of his disciples said, this is hard teaching. Who can accept this? You know, because also they're not allowed to drink blood. It's it's forbidden. It's it's specifically yeah. forbidden to drinking animal blood. Right. The idea that you drink human blood is, is so offensive and wrong. Yeah. And they start to leave, and Jesus turns to the disciples and go, "Right, you off you off as well then." And he's comfortable with people walking away in a way that us winsome ones aren't you know we want to run after people yes. and apologize especially if you're an overeducated british you know evangelical man maybe i mean not not all yeah. i'm sure but we are in danger of 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 being nicer than jesus rather than gentler or as gentle as jesus and i think i think that's a real problem so yeah jesus as usual gives us some real interesting categories to work with hello I am your Cooper and Terry virtual assistant. I am predestined to assist you. And also over-explaining. It really amuses me reading John's Gospel to see how often Jesus uses language like that, which could be easily misunderstood, right? Mm. But he doesn't correct people, even when they're walking away. He doesn't say, hang on, wait a minute, this isn't... This isn't a charter for transubstantiation. Yeah. <laughs> this is, you know... There's no... Stop. stop! That's not what I meant! Yeah, you got the wrong end of the stick. He is not afraid to use language which is deliberately um, provocative yeah. in order to presumably um, force people to think deeply about these things. And he then doesn't lose his nerve. Yeah. I think we do have a tendency of wanting to over-explain everything. Mm. And that's quite interesting to me. But the point I wanted to raise with you, though, is that I, I wonder whether there is a pattern here. If we're trying to work out why it is that Jesus speaks in one way with this group of people here, but then he also uses these words over here, I think one way of making sense of it is to see that Jesus and also the apostles are very mindful of the person or the people in front of them mm -hmm. when they are speaking. Yeah. Part of the problem with this kind of winsomeness, let's do winsomeness. Winsomeness is the key thing. We've, we've got a, that's our big thing, is that actually it's not always the right thing in every situation Yeah, to be, to be speaking in that way. And there seems to be a correlation between the perceived hardness of the person's heart, the hardness of the audience's heart, and the hardness of the language hmm. that then proceeds from Jesus or the apostles. So it's as if, all right, you're not, you're not going. You've got a huge chunk of granite. You're not. You need a sledgehammer. You you can't sand that thing down with you know a nice little bit of velvet. There's a sort of horses for courses sort of approach which requires, obviously, great wisdom on the part of the of, on the part of the Christian, particularly the the Christian pastor and leader, where we have to just try to to gauge and it's doubly difficult for us of course because you know newsflash we're not jesus we can't see into people's hearts the way that he did but at the same time as 
Harry Hill was fond of say, saying, you can tell a lot about people from what they're like. <laughs> and <laughs> and so we do meet people who do come across as extremely hard-hearted and hostile. And maybe the approach in those situations isn't always to be sort of softly, softly, gentle, gentle, but actually to be much more direct. Yeah. That certainly seems to be the pattern as you look at the text in Scripture. Yeah. And again, there's always that uh, assumption that if you haven't persuaded them in the room, as it were, or if someone's got angry, then something's gone wrong. And if right. it isn't resolved in any way, it's gone wrong. <clears throat> and you just, people don't change their minds in front of you, ever. You know, they, they never really go, oh, that's a really good point. I'll have to change my view on that. They normally mm. go, no, I'm not sure. And then three weeks later, you might get, about that thing we were talking about. I mean, I've been thinking mm. that, I mean, I'm still not agreeing with you, but... <laughs> There is a case, I suppose that, and you see that in John with Nicodemus. Again, yeah. it's uh, I've laced it in my water into wine show because John laces it through his gospel. At first, Jesus says to him, you must be born again or you must be born from above. And Nicodemus brain melts and just says, I have no yeah. idea. What? What? And then halfway through the gospel, he's like, we should probably just let him hear him out on this and mm. do we try people without a hearing or do we do we execute people without a hearing i'm not sure we do do we and right, there he right. is taking the body down uh with his pounds and pounds of spices because he's probably recognized mm. that jesus is a king and it takes him a while i mean john's gospel is sort of a three-year period you know because i think there are three passovers you know the way the feasts all work out it appears to be three years mm. so it took poor Nicodemus three years to get with the program and it may be that he slightly missed the boat because he figured it out round about the moment that Jesus has been crucified and saying my God my God why have you forsaken me and then going oh I've just worked out who he is oh <laughs> so, <laughs> whoops yeah. it's a bit late for that isn't it um but the other one I was just going to mention as you're talking about again if it goes wrong it's all in God's grace I was reading the other day with a uh, group of young people at my church. Young people. They were mm. under 18, so they were actually young. I'm not just being um, okay. being patronising. Mm. The riot at Ephesus, because we were reading Ephesians. I just thought, well, let's, what do we know about Ephesus? And just reading it through, where this riot absolutely kicks off. And um, I love, the, again, the understatement uh, where it says, there was no little disturbance concerning the way. Demetrius, the silversmith, um, you know, was worried about it. said, men, uh, he gathered, gathered them all together. And then the city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theatre and Paul wished to go in among the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. I just love this idea of Paul just going, um, tell you what, I'll talk to them. No! Mm. <laughs> you can imagine sort of bundling him out a back door, just going, yeah. there is no way we're letting him go out there in front of those people. Many people will die if that happens. And eventually, Alexander goes up, and I love this, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defence to the crowd. But when they recognised he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, that sounds like a Spurs game, two doesn't hours. it? I mean, that's just great, isn't it? That's all that is. You'd be lucky if you get two hours of animation from the Spurs game. Oh, okay, but yeah, that but wrong, wrong club. Wow. But yeah. it's like, this is what happens. When the gospel turns up, it, it really makes people angry. And the idea that you can just win them round by being winsome in the moment is not is is naive and silly yes yes so when we get that sort of response the sort of let's lynch him response yeah. <laughs> the, the 
the, t the tendency is to think I've said something wrong. If only I could be more like Tim Keller. Yeah. I'd be currently, you know, eating a nice meal with them in the Google canteen. Yeah. But that's not, yeah, that's not the case, is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can play those conversations in your head again and again and again to think, if only I'd done this or if only I'd said this, then it yeah. wouldn't have ended in an argument. You just go, no, I don't think that's true. I, I don't. I yeah. don't think you were winning that one, and that's okay. Yeah. Christ is still king, and he he has won, is winning, and will win. So there's that. He didn't fall. Inconceivable. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. I think it's also worth saying, isn't it, that whilst. It's certainly true that there is a demeanour of harshness, and we we, and we've all seen them, um, especially if we've got an account on Twitter. There's a demeanour of harshness that's not worthy of the gospel, where you're mm. just all harshness all the time. Yeah, everything's angular edges, everything's spiky, everything is suspecting other people's motives, everything is a lack of charity towards other people. Um, a culture, you know, hermeneutic of suspicion. Yeah. So yes, 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 that's wrong. But of course, there is also, isn't there a kind of gentleness that is actually harshness, that is actually cruelty? Mm -hmm. So in Scripture, there's that sort of category of people who say, prophets who say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So that idea of saying to people, no, everything's fine. You're good. There's nothing to repent of here. When actually maybe there is something to repent of here is incredibly cruel to people. Yeah. It's incredibly ungentle. It's the opposite of gentle. And it's the opposite of winsome, because it's going to get them killed. Hmm. Who else was gentle in John's Gospel? Pontius Pilate. Ah. Oh, I think his Pontius. last words to Jesus might be, well, what is truth? So it's like, oh, wow, he finishes with a real postmodern flourish there, doesn't he? Um, yeah. Thank heavens, you know, Pilate is not looking for trouble. He's just trying to keep yeah. the peace. And yeah. he betrays god's incarnate son and yes. sentences him to death okay well you win some you lose some i reckon Pilate lost that one right good i like the way you tied that in that's good i was wondering when that was going to happen <laughs> but i think it's also true isn't it you see that with herod as well actually the john the, the one who sliced off john the baptist's head the run-up to that is him getting along with john pretty famously mm. i'd love to hear him preach Come along tomorrow, I'll hear you again. This is great. This is good material. Mm. He was troubled by it, but he still wanted to hear him preach. And it's only when he gets hammer-jammered and says to everybody, hey, hey, whatever you want, or says says to the, the dancing Salome, I'll give you whatever you want. And she says the head of John the Baptist, at which point it's a... The, the winsome strategy fails because you want to please people so much... Mm that it causes you to kill the very person that you're trying to protect. That is the downside, obviously, of adopting a one-size-fits-all winsomeness. If you're always trying to avoid offending people, yeah. eventually you end up crucifying Jesus all over again. Yeah. And I think I would go further. Um, so you've got a nice little quote here in the notes from Ben Dunson in American Reformer. Different yeah. situations call for different responses. And I, and I agree, but I would also say that different people have different gifts and talents in different ways and are called to say things in certain situations. So mm -hmm. if Tim Keller is there 
in a situation. Well, God has placed Tim Keller in that situation to say a Tim Keller-like way. He's not going to start shooting his mouth off like, say, Mark Driscoll and vice versa. Having said that, I reckon Tim Keller could probably have done a similar work in Seattle, uh, which is not that dissimilar or more liberal uh, than New York. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how Mark Driscoll would have gotten on um, in his heyday before his fall, see previous episodes and other podcasts, in New York. I don't think that that would have been particularly effective in New York, but yeah. but we, we don't know. God placed different people in different times and different places. So I'm just conscious that when the critics of Tim Keller, who love their own preachers and their own extreme points of view or whatever it is, or their own ways of saying things, is like, don't be angry that Tim Keller doesn't talk like a fundamentalist preacher from Kentucky. OK, mm-hmm. that that isn't what he is. And yeah. so just being cross that he's not talking in a way that you would prefer is yeah. silly. And yeah. likewise, to expect to have a urbane, sophisticated cosmopolitan ministry uh, in some small rural town in Montana and that you're going to really make some inroads there and you sort of flatly refuse to wear a check shirt or buy a pickup or get out a chainsaw or go hunting because you're not that kind of person and you're just sat in the only place in town that serves one of those tiny little flat whites. Well, okay, that's fine. But Mm. I mean, it doesn't say horses for courses in the Bible, but I feel like it probably could. But you know what I I mean, right? It's in the New Living Translation. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I think it is. No, I think that's exactly right. And you're you're right to draw attention to the fact that the Lord has wired us differently, gives us yeah. different uh, gifts, and that's that's all good. I, I think that this is always the nice thing about Scripture, isn't it? It's one of the nice things about it, is that it's an equal opportunities offender of everybody. So for Driscoll, there are passages there that he really needed to hear. Yeah. And maybe there are passages there that Keller needs to hear as well. This is true for all of us. And the problem with the with the Twitter kind of mob is that the one thing I've really loved about, one of the things I really love about Keller is there is a humility there, I think. I remember mm. him saying that your harshest critics have got something that you ought to take to heart. Mm. Unless they're absolutely crazy, there's usually a, a, a grain of something that you sh- you can and should take from your harshest critics. Yeah, You never hear that from his harshest critics about themselves. Yeah, You know, those guys, are, that's the last thing they would ever say. So I think that's that speaks extremely well mm. of of Keller and his and his wisdom. I think he's been shaped much more by scripture than a lot of his assailants. Yeah. But yes, I do think this is something obviously the from a pastor's perspective now I and I I feel I can speak to this having now been a pastor for approximately 8 weeks. Um long, long a, in the tooth. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I can speak authoritatively yeah. now. Yeah. Uh that gentleness at the wrong time to the wrong person can be deadly Mm. and as a brit particularly who really doesn't typically want to offend people i really need to hear that i really need to hear that and just be very mindful of not only the, the the situation i'm in but the particular person i'm talking to and not be afraid to to adapt methods and language um carefully but but intentionally yeah, there's a great Twitter feed called uh, Very British Problems. Um, and I've just pulled up one here. It's worth having a look at. So if you're American, you might not know this. It says a, brick, a, a quick British translation guide. Meanings of, we'll see, 
No, that's what that means. <laughs> Meanings of maybe, no, that's what that means. Meanings of could do, no, no, we're not doing that. I'll think about it. No, I'm not doing that. Let's talk about it later. No. I'll see how I feel. No, no, I'm not coming. This is how winsome British yeah. people talk. And so, so Greek has a million words for love or whatever yeah. it is. And, you know, English has yeah, many words for, for no, because no. we just don't want to yeah. say no. We're, and everybody knows. Everybody can hear what's being said when someone just says, you, you know, you're coming out later. Well, I'll see how I feel later. And you just think, oh, they're not coming. And they don't want to yeah, let me down. And that's OK. Yeah. Yeah. You read, my lord. I think the other thing that came up on the on the Patreons when we mentioned we were going to talk about this, I think our friend Ash uh, mentioned this as well, is the idea about mm. who are you trying to win? And there is a kind of a rhetorical technique to some extent. And I've just, you know, say General Sunil, taken part in a debate where pretty much everyone's made up their minds on this and there's only really about 20 30 people in the middle who could go one way or the other hmm. so whatever you're saying is actually for the benefit of a relatively small number of people hmm. so we forget that when jesus is blasting pharisees and calling them vipers who is hearing that jesus knows who's hearing that and he needs them to hear him call them that word Yes. I mean, and Twitter does this to some extent as well, where you're not really arguing with people. You're sort of having a conversation with somebody in public in front of people who are following you. And I don't I basically don't do this. I don't use Twitter very much. Um, but I am conscious of that. That is good rhetorical skill is to know that you're yeah. engaging in a debate. And and it's a very common thing that, you know, you have people with wildly different points of view arguing with each other and they're not going to change each other's mind and everyone listens to the arguments and, and so they're kind of tearing chunks out of each other. And I don't, I've never found that particularly compelling. I never really yes. want to hear that sort of thing. Yes, and maybe uh, Nicodemus was, was one of those who heard some of that excoriating language mm. at some point. Yeah, or John too, I think. John Jesus goes yeah. to the temple and right. and Nicodemus goes to him afterwards and it's almost as if he's saying, oh, that was a bit steep. Um, that's a bit good, strong. Good teacher. But that's the thing. Mm. I So I, I take the point. I think that's exactly right. There is an audience, which is not just the... There's probably two audiences mm. in any, any, any given situation where there's more than a few people. But I think he is, even with those you whitewash tombs, you brood of vipers. This is, there is still a hope for repentance there, it seems to me. Mm. I mean, you're, when you, sometimes that kind of language is necessary for a really hardened heart. I mean, there is, we look at the way Paul advises people to speak to those who are Christians who are in sin and are unrepentant. You know, the, mm. the, adv the advice is to be very, you know, to be very direct mm. about it with the hope that they come to repentance yeah the whole idea of putting people out of fellowship again is, is I mean, that's a very harsh way of speaking to someone addressing somebody but again the hope is repentance so i think yes it, even there with those words jesus is hoping that at least some of those pharisees are going to repent yeah well that's yeah. great i think we fixed that yeah brilliant what, next? what do you talk about now yeah thanks everybody for for joining us uh, we're going to stick around and talk some more to our dear patreon supporters if you want to join them become a coop and carry plus member on apple simply by pressing the subscribe button or 
by following the link in the show notes, going to Patreon. Just do a Google search for Patreon, Cooper and Kerry, and you'll find your way there. But thank you so much for coming. And you get access to the Discord chat as well, where we say, hey, on the next episode, we're going to talk about this. And then people jump in and say, oh, have you thought about this? Have you read this article? All that kind of stuff. So exactly. I'm not saying they do our research for us. That would be ludicrous. Um, but uh, it's that a good chat. That would be for others to say. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a good chat before and after as well. And so yeah. it just feels like just feels like we we really do think about stuff and do life together and even share prayer requests as well which is really Mm -hmm. beautiful uh when it happens so if you fancy a a piece of that join us on patreon but the but cooper and carrie plus on apple podcast is pretty easy um and if you join on cooper and carrie plus on apple send us an email cooper and carrie at gmail.com of how you joined and we'll add you to the discord so you don't miss out yeah all right everybody lots of love Have a wonderful week and we'll speak to you, God willing, in two weeks' time. Cheerio. Bye-bye.